Hello, and welcome to Curious Objects. This is the third and final episode in our series on the remarkable story of Belazare, the enslaved 15-year-old boy who appears against all odds alongside three white children in a masterpiece of Louisiana portraiture dating to 1837. Over the last two episodes, we've traced the story of Belazare, how he came to be included in this picture, and the improbable path the painting has followed up to the present day. Today, I want to take a step back and reflect on what this painting really means. Beyond the fascinating and troubling and revealing stories we've explored over the past two episodes, I want to ask, what is, or what should be, or what can be, Belazare's legacy? What does he have to tell us? And what is he asking of us? And what happens next? After this episode, we'll be taking a break for Thanksgiving, but we'll be back afterwards with a different curious object, with its own powerful story. In this case, about perhaps the most radical religious community in the history of America, why they all but disappeared, and why despite that, we're all still kind of obsessed with them. And before we get to today's story, I want to make a personal appeal. Curious Objects is a labor of love, and for me, every episode is genuinely a privilege to work on. Uh, There's nothing that makes me happier than hearing from one of you who listened to an episode and got something out of it. You email me at curiousobjectspodcast at gmail.com. You find me on Instagram at objectiveinterest. You write reviews on Apple Podcasts. I see it all, and it helps give me the fuel to keep going. And the truth is, I need your help on this one. Especially as we've started to take on these complex and rich and challenging stories, the only way this work is going to be sustainable is if we're able to reach a wider audience. And the best way I know of to make that happen relies on you. So, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, and you'd like this project to continue, I'm not asking for financial support, but I really am asking for your help to tell someone about it. Maybe shoot your friend a text or an email, or post something about it on social media. Tell your family about it. I love doing Curious Objects, and I really want to be able to keep doing this work. And right now, that depends on you. So please just take a moment now, while you're thinking about it, and share the word with someone. Or shoot me a message. I'd be thrilled to hear from you. And if you've done that already, thank you. It means the world to me, and I'll keep doing everything I can to bring you the best stories I can find. 
Now, with all that said, let's get back to Belazare. Last episode, we traced the history and whereabouts of the painting all the way to its current owner, Jeremy Simeon, who has loaned it to the Ogden Museum in New Orleans to be exhibited there. Here's Bradley Sumrall, their chief curator. It's been a real honor uh, to have this piece at the museum. Uh, The public has reacted very strongly to it, as expected. And one of the goals that I have here at the museum is to um, have every person that comes into the museum feel represented uh, through the collection and exhibitions. And when it comes to um, Black representation, that's that's fairly easy in uh, the 20th century um, and 21st century. But it becomes harder to find uh, representation, especially positive representation um, of Black faces in the 19th century. And Jeremy has that in his collection through a rather extensive collection of carte de visites and cabinet cards and uh, daguerreotypes and tintypes of um, Black figures from the 19th century. Um, So that's where our conversation began. And then through the through those conversations, uh, mostly over Zoom during the pandemic, um, I came to be, I became aware of his purchase of Belazaire, and he shared that with me, um, and I was very excited to hear it. And once I saw the painting, I was even more excited because it is such a a beautiful depiction of uh, this enslaved boy. We're very honored to be able to show this painting, uh, and I think you know seeing. The children react to it has been um, very rewarding uh, to see um, uh, their, you know, kind of conversations around uh, erasure and and, uh, slavery and uh, especially seeing, you know, children of color, seeing such a positive, um, empathetic, um, beautiful treatment of a black figure from the 19th century. The Ogden Museum isn't necessarily the end of Belazare's journey, but does feel like a resting place. This painting spent 185 years accumulating the dust and grime of racism and shame and fear and secrecy and misunderstanding. It's carried that ever-increasing weight decade by decade, and now at long last, it's been cleaned and transformed, remembered and rediscovered. You know, it's it's been a kind of a, a long road. I, I'd say, even though it's been only a year, a little over a year, I swear it feels like five years. And um, when I first saw the painting um, on the walls of the Ogden, there was a chill, and there was a sense of uh, of uh, just a kind of a, a sense of, of of pride in sharing this story. And, um, and, you know, it's, it was fulfilling, but there's also a level of sadness with this painting every time I see it, um, for many reasons, some of them personal, but most of them just be, just because I know the story of these, not just Belazare's difficulty, but also this family's difficulty. Um, these children, none of them lived to adulthood. That's terrible. And then the one person who lived as an adult um, was sold away. I mean, it's just, it must've been very lonely. It must've been very just tragic for him to have grown up with these children and see them all 
disappeared. That's how I feel. I, I have conflicted feelings about mm. the whole thing. I think it's an extraordinarily important piece. I'm proud of the work, but for me personally, you know, it's a lot. That, of course, is Jeremy Simeon, and he's still working on this painting. One of the things he's hoping for is that by making the world aware of Belazare's story, maybe, just maybe, someone will turn up evidence of what happened to him after being sold to Evergreen Plantation in 1856. I, I have this hope that uh, when, when a story um, can, you know, is shared on more than one platform and more people hear about it, somebody will say, oh, I've been having this piece of paper that I found, you know, I've had it for 10 years and it says right here, you know. That, uh, you know, this gentleman went here and he lived a prosperous life, had 37 children or something that we would love to hear about. And his descendants are right actually over there. That would be magical. I don't, but I, I don't know if I can convince myself of that. <laughs> so yeah. until it happens. Until that does happen. Until someone, maybe even someone listening to this right now has that, I remember seeing that moment. What we do have is a painting that has been trying to speak to us for a long time to complicate our collective memory of the institution of slavery, to disrupt our moral intuitions about America's racial history, and to challenge our own personal histories and the way we situate ourselves and our forebears in one historical narrative or another. I mean, in, listen, if you, in Louisiana, we have a lot of secrets. We have so many strange taboo subjects, um, especially relating to race. It, it's, a, it's a complex story. This really shows the complexity of, of slavery. And it, it also shows that while somebody, it, it shows that the psychological trauma that enslaved people had to endure. Um, because one moment the family's doting on you, you're included in the portrait. You're, you're a domestic servant, so this would have been probably in an area, a public area of the home. You would have passed every day, whether you were bringing food, whether you were getting water, whether you were, whatever you were doing, you would have passed every day and seen your, your image with this family. That's just so strange to me. Uh, mm. it's, not, it's, 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 it's so, I can't even imagine that, and I don't understand. I can't fully understand what Bella's heir would have thought about that. A lot of times we want to erase so much to separate ourselves from, from certain things and certain aspects. Or, oh, my ancestors never owned enslaved people. Oh, they would never do that. As though all of our ancestors are amazing, great people. We all have relatives and ancestors who, who, who we sometimes don't want to talk about or wish, you know, <laughs> that, that they were not related. And that's th I wouldn't that's know anything about that. <laughs> right. You know, I wouldn't either. All of mine are just amazing <laughs> people. <laughs> but we cherry pick who is great and who is good. And everyone is loved by someone. It's a good and they, and they don't have to be loved by everybody. But you have to tell the truth about what your perspective is of that particular person. And so there are some individuals sometimes that want to completely separate themselves from that aspect of saying that their family were um, involved in the slave trade. But this, this country was built off of that. We have to talk about that. 
I'm not saying that this current descendant who is alive now, that they are responsible for this. I'm talking about what someone's ancestors were, were doing. That has nothing to do with this person saying, hey, no, you own them. No, that, that's, that's not what it is. So don't, we, we can't try to erase that and hide that. And it can be a, sh a, a shame to some, uh, to, to, to some individuals. That's Yael Gordon, the genealogist we've heard from before. And here's art historian Wendy Castanell. I think that's an interesting thing about the 19th century in general and race relations in, across the South in general. It was not as straightforward as it would at first seem on the surface because you're dealing with humans and individual personalities and things. So the laws were one thing, but the way people interacted within the space of the laws was completely different. And I think that that's what this portrait illustrates for us. I keep coming back to this idea that the more honest your story is about history, the more complex and challenging it becomes. And one of the opportunities that we have in looking at historical objects like this painting, one of the reasons I'm so interested in curious objects, is that they are fundamentally truthful. Not that they can't be deceptive. On the contrary, they can and often do create their own biased narratives. But whatever the object is, whatever it looks like, whatever story its maker or its patron want to tell, the fact remains that it was really there. It was really made by a very real person. In this painting of Belazare and the Frey children, you're seeing a glimpse of a history not compiled and summarized and retold, not streamlined and condensed and abbreviated, but a glimpse, however small, of a true moment, a snapshot of reality. I, I think the most important thing to know is that this did happen. This is real. It's not just something we read about. And erasure is real. Uh, and we have to, I think the, the sooner we all acknowledge, oh my goodness, this is terrible, so tragic, where enslaved people um, were brutalized, where they were torn from their families, um, and where they, I feel, betrayed. And then of course, with Belazer's case, would they disappear? Is he free now in this painting? As we know his name, I feel like in a way he is. And so what we have with this painting at the end of the day is Belazer. Not all of him. Not even very much of him. We only have bits and pieces. But in this painting, we do have a part of him. A small but honest part. This painting makes me feel very, uh, it's, it's, it's a couple of things. So it makes me feel, feel very sad for Belazare uh, because he's been hidden for however long he's been hidden. And he's just been trying to come out, trying to come out, trying to tell his story without being, without being able to tell his story. And so he was almost forgotten to the time. But that was the purpose. The purpose wasn't to, wasn't to give these individuals necessarily an identity. 
So his identity, who he was, was was there was an attempt to erase his identity and make like so many millions of others nameless and faceless. But he had he had he was his he was there. And so that was tried that was that was stripped from him. The fact that his mother and his siblings were they, you know, they, we don't know what they look like. That makes me very sad for him because while we have what he looks like, you know, they deserve a to, to, to be recognized and known just as well. And but it also makes me very proud of him because I believe that that painting speaks volumes and him being there and his stance. It just it, to, to me, it just. It was not one of, say, he was being submissive, um, so to speak. And so it, it showed to me that he, you know, he was kind of, it kind of reminded me of a little of a tough guy that, you know, he knew he, he who he was in spite of his circumstance, he was still existing. And so it was almost an act of defiance. My opinion was an act of defiance to whereas he knew he wasn't supposed to be in this picture for whatever reason, but he was really supposed to be there. Mm. And he's going to stand up straight. He's going to um, to stand alongside these children who was who 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 otherwise he weren't wasn't supposed to be alongside. And to see the folding of the arms that can also be taken as an act of defiance. But then you look at his image and think, but he's looking a little bit sullen, but he's still standing. He wasn't at their feet. He was still standing, even if it was standing away. And when someone crosses their arms that even in today, even nowadays, you think mm. about these, um, these, um, these, these scientists and criminologists and um, people who study individuals, body language, and is that can be taken as okay? Well, I am cutting the world off. I've now I've stopped paying attention to you, or I'm in a defense mode. But it can also, um, you know, I me. Mean? I'm protecting myself. I'm protecting myself from every element that is around me. And so I think he he did just that. He protected himself. And so I'm very proud of this this young man for literally standing up. So. What comes next for Belazare? Jeremy owns the painting today, but if you ask him, that's not a permanent arrangement. I don't know exactly the next chapter in the life of the painting, other than it has to end up somewhere where it will be seen um, and appreciated and somewhere it's safe. Um, because that's, that's what started this whole thing, uh, that this painting needed to find a home. My home cannot be this for this painting. I have my own family and I have my own thing that I have to, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't live with this painting like that. It's such a heavy painting and it would be very selfish of me as a person, as a collector to just keep this in a wall or to keep it in storage. So it has to go somewhere. It's bigger than me. It's more important than me and my, my, collection and, and vanities and whatever else. So the next the chapter of the story would be to make sure it's where it can be seen, loved, and where it's safe. 
One thing is for sure. Belazare is stepping up now to take his place. After a life of enslavement and a legacy of erasure, 200 years after his birth, and 185 years after that cool spring day with the French artist, after the other three children died, a century after that cross-armed teenage boy was painted over, after the people who were both his enslavers and, in some perverse sense, his family, or, or their descendants had tried to forget his very existence. After decades during which a museum kept that memory hidden, here he still is. And the world is starting to see him and to understand what he has to tell us. I believe that this is a national treasure. I believe what happened to the painting is as important as the story of the boy in the painting. It, it really is. Um, so I believe that that's something that resonates or should resonate with people all over the United States uh, and even maybe the world to some degree, um, regard, you know, regardless of what you look like, whether you're black or of African descent. I think the story is bigger than that. I think we can learn from this. For Belazare's memory to survive through all those years, and finally today shine through into our consciousness, I don't think I would call it a triumph. It's hard to call it a happy ending when we still don't know how Belazare's life ended at all. And really, it's not an ending anyway. There's still work to be done. There are still stories to be told. But it is maybe a respite. A moment of honesty, or at least an attempt at it. And whatever comes next, we will be working not to forget Belzer, but to remember him. This has been Curious Objects from the magazine Antiques. This episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati. Social media and web support comes from Sarah Bellotta. Mateo Solis Prada is our digital media assistant. Our theme song is by Trap Rabbit. And I'm Ben Miller. 